0: Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of the Going Deep Podcast with Aaron Watson. As always, if you enjoy today's and other episodes, please leave a rating and review on iTunes for me. We're trying to get in that new and noteworthy section. Um, but without further ado, I just have to inter- uh, introduce Scott Rogerson, today's guest. Uh, Scott is the CEO of a digital and social media marketing company called Community Elf. Uh, one of the best episodes that we've done so far. Scott has an amazing story. He's incredibly articulate. Uh, Just basically sat back and let him uh, drop knowledge on me for a little over an hour. So I highly encourage you to listen closely to the entire thing. Uh, If you have questions, if you want to know more about Scott, check out the show notes after you're done listening. But this is a fantastic episode. So without further ado, Scott Rogerson. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. Um, so Scott and I got coffee last week, um, kind of just getting introduced to each other. We've been introduced by a, a mutual friend and uh, just hearing your story, I immediately knew that it was a, a story that I wanted to share uh, with the Going Deep audience, all the way from um, an undergrad at Duquesne to now the CEO of of a young digital advertising company. Or maybe, I don't know if you guys like the term. Yeah, young, we'll get into but, that. That's good. But uh, it, it was it was really interesting and inspiring. Uh, so you started off with a BSBA uh, in economics, information systems, and international business right. at Duquesne. Uh, how did you pick Duquesne as yeah. where you went to study?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's also an interesting story. So I uh, moved around a lot growing up, originally from Atlanta, uh, but then lived in the Detroit area, the Philadelphia area, a couple different times. Um, My mom's side of the family was always from the Weirton area. So holidays, we always went to the same place. And most of the time we were east of Weirton. And as you know, going from east to west, you're always going through Pittsburgh, oftentimes on Boulevard of the Allies. Mm -hmm. And on Boulevard of the Allies is that beautiful wrought iron bridge that says Duquesne University on it. And so, We were driving actually back for Thanksgiving one year, I believe it was sophomore year of high school, and saw that bridge and said, you know what, this is one that it will be close to my mom's side of the family. Looks like a pretty interesting school. Let me learn more about it. Best advertising ever, just having a bridge that has your name on it, apparently, is the way to go. Absolutely. Uh, Added it to my list, luckily, Duquesne was smart enough to have a early admission i believe it was called there's always that difference early acceptance early admission something like that they were the first ones to do that so in as far as the calendar year applied to a bunch of schools duquesne came back first and said you know you're accepted perfect i needed one college to go to this was a college and we'll just go with that one i had other about 10 other half completed applications ended up tearing all those up and duquesne was it and actually started at duquesne in the 3-3 law program with my aspirations in high school was to become an attorney Uh, and started in that program The first three years was in the common core classes that every university has then you moved in some of the business curriculum And I realized as part of that program that I wasn't able to declare a specific major and was concerned that by not declaring a specific major or getting deeply ingrained in some sort of business curriculum It was going to leave me in a difficult situation if, for some reason, law school wasn't the right thing. Then I would be left with kind of a general studies degree and have spent three or four years and not really have any deep knowledge to apply in some sort of fashion with the next position. And so it was at that time when I said, I need to find something specific inside of business. Let me move away from 3-3 law. If I want to go back to law school after graduating, that's fine. I can just do it in tandem like everyone else in the world does and information systems became very interesting for me as well as economics with the goal of utilizing the economic theory and practices of understanding how those different supply and demand areas work and how individuals behave and hopefully pulling the data from utilizing the information system knowledge to make better decisions so it was much more of a data-driven decision-making idea coming out of Duquesne and trying to apply that in, in the larger world. Absolutely. And let me tell you, you saved yourself a lot of time by not filling out all
0: this applications. I I went through that process. I don't, I don't know how many places I applied, but it was like eight or something. It was was pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, but I also share the, the economics degree with you. That was uh, definitely helpful in training my mind to think in a, a very valuable analytical way. Um, so after you graduated, you started into consulting?
1: Correct. Yeah. So it was a a firm called ProTivity, uh, which was still fairly new at the time. Uh, They came out of Arthur Anderson when all of that fun happened in the early 2000s. They were the internal audit and risk management practice of that firm ended up getting purchased by a company called Robert Half, which traditionally does staffing. And this was kind of their more professional services, internal audit uh, and risk management arm. And for me, it was where I interned junior year at Duquesne. Uh, it was one of those, you know, ideas where you walk in, in your internship, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. They wine and dine and do those great training programs and you meet a great group of people and you just know that this is the area that I want to be a part of. Uh, one of the great things about Protivity was that, and I think still is that you're actually trying to solve the problems and you're, you're helping with that organization in those layers of management. They're actually responsible for getting the work accomplished versus talking about what needs to be done. And so a lot of the work for me just coming out of school was getting your head bashed against the wall a few times over and recognizing that you really knew nothing about anything. Uh, And being able to work with a team and travel to different areas of the country, experience different industries, understand different problems. Uh, And especially in the internal audit role, you were really trying to understand how those processes in the business environment worked at the tactical level, as well as applying some of those information technology skills to try to either enhance current applications that that company had or develop new applications to help maybe plug some holes for them in an interim period until they were able to develop something a little bit more robust. Uh, We didn't do large scale system implementations. We were more focusing on identifying the process, mapping out their current business process, looking at the current technology systems and identifying any gaps between those two areas, and then trying to find the best way to fill that. Was it people? Was it process? Was it technology? Again, awesome experience. Uh, It was exactly what you were looking for when you came right out of school, but it was also one of those experiences that was six days a week on the road, right? You were traveling a lot, perfect when you were a bachelor and didn't really have any roots tied down anywhere, Over that period of time, however, you know, was able to get married, which was fantastic house, dog, right. The whole deal, uh, wanted to actually get some experience in the Pittsburgh community beyond just meeting the local dry cleaner all the time. And knew I wanted to learn more about why these strategies were being developed. Right. So at proactivity, we were very much execution focused and doing the best we can to make sure that those strategies are effective in any way possible. We weren't always responsible for helping to develop those strategies. Certainly not in the role that I was, which was kind of the bottom of the pyramid in a lot of cases. So those strategies got handed down and said, this is what we need to do. Make it right. Uh, Most of the time, those strategies made sense. A lot of times, you were a little bit concerned or questioning as to where that strategy came from and how they came to this point, just mostly out of sheer curiosity. So I knew I wanted to do more strategic work. I still enjoyed the consulting environment, the problem-solving, active, dynamic environment that provides. Found a great firm locally here um, called The Hill Group that is a management consulting firm in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. So you know, two exits out west from downtown. Excellent firm that does both nonprofit and for-profit consulting, which also gave me that nonprofit exposure, which I had very little of prior to. I mean, it was all, right, you go to business school, you're not really learning about the nonprofit side of the business, you're mostly focusing on for-profit bottom line, right? Looking at those financials. So it was very interesting to see the other side of the coin, if you will, to understand what's going on in that larger, very exciting and enjoyable community of the nonprofit world, and how we can bring practices from one to the other. What What were some specific strategies or skills or
0: growth that you need to make as a consultant or as a person to better understand the nonprofit world? that you didn't have from your for-profit, business-oriented background?
1: Yeah, I think it was very interesting. And I think the big word that always comes up is the, the stakeholder concern, right? So trying to understand who you are working for in a lot of those cases, um, where in, often in, in the for-profit environment, it's the equity holders of the company, right? Those are the ultimate stakeholders. And yes, there's triple bottom line concerns when you're you know, concerning yourself with some of the other activities and actions that you're taking as an organization. But ultimately, when you make decisions, the heaviest weighted item becomes your customers, your employees and the equity holders of the organization. And there really isn't the larger community at that same level as some of those other areas at the for profit environment and the nonprofit world. Right. Those other communities or those other stakeholders are what you're working for. Right. The foundation community is also someone who you want to be very strongly attached to, but they're also working for the same people that you're working for. So in a lot of cases, it is aligning yourself with what the community needs, understanding what the community needs, and then trying to find ways to make that successful. Uh, learning that is a very different thing when you're used to kind of being in a very large, maybe a middle market or a fortune company and trying to execute process redesign, right? Taking that different step and understanding that there are things outside of those walls of a for-profit corporate environment was very enlightening uh, and being able to be an active member of a small boutique consulting firm to help map those and chart those strategies. And then also understanding the connections between the for-profit world and the nonprofit world. And a lot of people consider it either or, right? But there's a lot of strong connections. And this becomes obvious to someone who's been around the block a few times. And when you're just still fairly new from school, you know, you don't really think about it that way. You think of them as two discrete kind of silent entities but the people who are leading those for-profit companies often have passions elsewhere and those passions are vesting inside of their nonprofit activities and they bring those practices back and forth. And so why shouldn't we do the same thing? Absolutely. Um, So as you mentioned, I kind of got you a little off track
0: there, but you went to the Hill group, a smaller consulting group, um, get a little bit more strategy exposure. Um, how was your experience there different than at Proactivity?
1: Yeah, it. I mean, both of them are great firms, and they still continue to be great firms. I think the, the great thing about Proactivity was it was really best for what the stage I was in, right? So at Proactivity, I was just coming out of school. Like I said, I knew nothing about anything. And the great thing about Proactivity was that they had a lot of training structure. They had a you know, hundreds of experienced individuals who knew exactly what to do in a lot of different cases you could just soak up all of that knowledge and information that was coming from those people. Um, As I wanted to learn more and become a bit more strategic in the way I was thinking, I knew I wanted to get away from that larger firm environment and, you know, hopefully make a greater impact in a shorter amount of time, Uh, but also be able to stay home and make an impact, not just on the firm I was working with, but with the customers or clients that I was working with as well. So one of the things about productivity that, made me also want to consider doing something else was we were making a lot of impact in a lot of organizations, but a lot of those organizations were not in Pittsburgh. Uh, Whereas with the Hill group, the majority of the organizations we work with or worked with at the time were Pittsburgh focused. So you could start building a local network and understand how to really develop synergies between organizations because you weren't working with a Denver company and a San Diego company who had nothing to do with one another. You were often working with organizations that did have connections or would be valued to have connections. And so helping to make those connections was very interesting, as well as being within a smaller organization where you could have that instant impact. Uh, In addition, the Hill Group provided the opportunity to stay local, uh, which allowed more family time, which was very much appreciated, and the ability to go to Carnegie Mellon for their evening program at the Tepper School for their MBA to help to hone some more of those skills and try to balance those against you, know, you learn something one evening on Monday, what are the customers or clients that we can apply some of those trainings to on Tuesday? And then bringing some of that insight back to the studies also helped, I think, to ingrain some of that stuff more than just kind of going through that program, maybe on a full-time basis without having that opportunity to start checking some of those different practices and seeing how they actually work in the quote-unquote real world. Absolutely. You, uh, said a really
0: a phrase that I really liked. Uh, soaking up information while you're at these uh, consulting firms. You clearly are someone who's constantly chasing um, further education, uh, growing your own personal knowledge base through um, getting your MBA at Tepper, your BSBA at Duquesne, and your experience in the consulting groups. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your primary strategy now that you are the leader of an organization as opposed to um, a more subordinate role? Right. What are your strategies for, as, to use your words, soaking up as much yeah. information as possible?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you start out, right, that a lot of the information is given to you. I mean, here's what you should be learning. I and mean, Go to this training seminar or go and uh, read this handbook that we have for you. And that kind of level one information is mostly already prepared, especially in a large organization. I think what you start to find, at least what my experience has been, is as you continue to grow in your own career, you have to hunt more for that information. Less and less of it's actually coming to you. And some of that may be, right, I'm on one data point with one line, and maybe that just the way the times have changed since, you know, the mid-2000s is still how information is consumed now. But it does seem like more and more to keep yourself, to keep that uh, blade sharpened, you have to go out and find that information and spend the time to make sure you are hunting for it. It's not going to come to you as much anymore.
0: Would you say that that trait, though, of being someone who hunts for that additional information is something that qualified or um, led you to be to reaching these higher positions where if you were someone who... Simply absorbed what the company right. shared with you and didn't go beyond that, you might not have um, excelled or um, been promoted yeah. to the, the higher levels. Yeah, and I think
1: there's that common saying, right? The more prepared you are, the luckier you, you become or seem. And I think it's very true in a lot of those cases, right? If you're having a conversation with someone, regardless of what your role is, if it's a a you know, potential person at a networking event, if it's your superior, if it's your subordinate, seeming to have the knowledge or not just kind of tacit, I learned this in class one time, or even I experienced this five years ago, but hey, did you know that X and Y organization recently raised $17.5 million in venture funding in series C from this organization? Here's who they are, and here's how I think they fit into what we're trying to do as an organization and our value proposition that creates a very engaging conversation. And whether you're an individual who needs to hunt to help help them have these engaging conversations and understand the larger world around them versus what you see on a day-to-day basis, or you're an organization who's trying to persuade other individuals to understand that you have the knowledge to solve problems, that hunting and then sharing information is critical in both accounts.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I strongly agree with that. That was, um, I, I, fully align with you on on that view. Um, So as we've mentioned, you um, have your MBA from Teppert CMU. Uh, You focused on finance operations and marketing there. Um, Tell me a little bit about what the experience was like to um, be going to those evening classes and what you learned there that led to some of your successes down the road. Yeah, yeah. I
1: think it was. I mean, deciding on, not deciding to go to that program was difficult in of itself, right? It's not one that you get full ride scholarships to. I don't even believe, at least at the time, the evening program even had scholarship opportunities. So you're paying full freight on that, um, which isn't a small amount of dollars, and so it's a very big investment for you personally to decide to go into that program. And I think you you recognize that. It is a different institution uh, and what they're trying to persuade. I mean, they tell you that, right? But I don't think you know what it really means until you're deep into it. And some of the things that really struck me uh, were the the quality of the professors in what they were teaching, um, where it seemed really being drawn from experience. And everyone in every class was passionate about what they were talking about. There wasn't the, you know, this guy is likely focusing on research only. It feels like they have to teach this class. Uh, being able to really engage with those and see their passion makes you want to learn it more because you're seeing some you know extremely intellectual individual who's passionate about a subject that seems mundane to you you're missing something they're spent they spent their lives on this so figuring out what that is makes you get makes you get more excited about that topic and then being able to i think be in the evening program which i alluded to a little bit earlier of applying that actively in your day-to-day work versus kind of really just reading it and doing exercises with that skill set and then moving on to the next thing without actually being able to apply it Uh, at least for me personally i think that allowed a lot more to sink in and be continuously applicable and then the the group that you're with uh, is another big area for me that i think above all i would rate as making the tuition payments worth it Uh, the people that you meet there Again, only knowing the really the, the flex time or the evening program. Uh, a lot of those guys, they're coming from a huge variety of different industries. They have a wide variety of different experiences, all of whom are passionate about what they're doing, right? They are paying the same amount as you are to try to get through this program. So they have a strong aspiration for extreme future success to be able to cover those bills. And they want to find a way to get there. Uh, And so just being around a group like that, uh, individuals who have those types of mentalities has been really valuable, not just when we were in the program, but I think keeping in touch with those people and seeing how their careers have progressed is just amazing. And uh, I envy every one of those people and what they're doing right now. I think it's fantastic work to see the diversity of experiences and how people have come in from one background. Went through this program, which I think more than the education itself, just breeds confidence and the ability to say, yes, I can go and tackle whatever that dream is that I want to go do. I came in as a visual arts major, and I want to be a software operations engineer for Amazon. And they go and get it. And now they're out in Seattle loving life and doing awesome things out there. That's just fantastic. And I think it continues to drive you because you continue to see what other people are doing. And you want to stay connected and help each other become really valuable and, and key players, not just in Pittsburgh but across the country. Absolutely,
0: that reminds me of another truism: that you're the average of the people that you spend the most mm-hmm. time with. I would agree, and uh, that seems uh, is obviously a great um, group of people to be the average of.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, without going to that program, I never would have gotten into this search fund, private equity craziness that was Oak Hill equity for the years of 2013 and 2014, uh, which was I think hugely seminal for me in again, stepping from the inside the walls for-profit mindset to, Hey, there's something greater than for-profit, right? There's this nonprofit world that you know exists, but here's what that really means. And here's how these two really work together. There's this larger community of Pittsburgh and the region and what's going on here. And there's this other thing that happens kind of outside of the quote-unquote walls of a organization, even in the for-profit world, that involves you know, debt markets and equity markets and the financial engineering side of things and understanding what private equity versus venture capital is. None of those things are really taught, uh, they're talked about, but I don't think they're actually taught in a lot of programs.
0: So let's back up a second here and explain what a search fund is uh, and how you got involved in that. Yeah.
1: So going back to the Tepper program, I met an individual there named Brian Zafris. Um, He was previously involved in some mergers and acquisitions work with larger organizations uh, and he had this passion for continuing to do those things, but also similar to the rest of the group that we were going to school with had this desire to make an indelible mark somewhere that can live on and be part of their story. I was doing the consulting thing at Hill Group at the time, really enjoying what was going on there. Uh, and still had a desire to do something though that was a bit longer term. So one of the things that I was starting to, uh, was starting to fade on me as far as the attractiveness for consulting was the short term project nature, right? So you go into an organization, spend six months there maybe, help get the strategy together, really map out some things, get everybody really charged up. You're really charged up by the end of that and you feel like you have some vested interest in that. Then the project ends. And you hand over all that information and you say, you know, Aaron, I hope you have a good time with this, you know, keep in touch if you need anything. You don't hear from that person again often, uh, other than running into them and saying, "Hey, how's that strategy going?" and they say, "Oh, yeah, it's pretty good. Here's what's happening." Uh, I wanted to get dirt under my fingernails a bit more. And roll up those sleeves and really dive into something like stand on the production line right? start twisting those toothpaste tubes onto the toothpaste do some of those things that are in it where you can say yes I've been a part of this and this is what's occurred and I didn't know where to start with that I, I didn't necessarily want to go into the larger corporation and kind of you know continue to work your way through That just didn't seem like it was something that my mind could handle uh, and so I started talking to Ryan and he was saying hey I'm interning right now at an organization called Rosemore Capital. Oh my God, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, they're a search fund. Search for what, right? And what does that mean? Are you searching for people here? Is this a talent placement or a staffing agency, which is normally what I associated at the time with the word search and are looking for individuals? No, it's a model that was created in Stanford in the early to mid 80s, where the goal was for individuals who are recently graduating from uh graduate business programs, would either team up or go solo, identify a group of invest- investors who understand the search fund model in most cases. And the model is that those inv- those individuals will go out and raise this money. They, each investor will give you a small amount of capital and it's similar to an option contract really. you know, I'm gonna give you $10 and the goal is for you to take that $10 and go out for the next two years in most cases and look at thousands of organizations in specific industries that meet kind of our investment philosophy, hopefully at some point you find one that actually would like to be purchased. So it's almost a succession planning plus liquidity option for the current business owner. And often cases it is someone who either it's a family business or it's something that a single individual started and she says, I've been doing this for 55 years, right? It's a great business. I don't really have the next person to step into this role. I don't have a family that I want to give this to. I'd like the liquidity, but I also want to make sure my company's taken care of. And that's really the niche that the search fund fits into for an organization who's looking for a buyer. But those are hard to find. And so that's why you have this two-year window with a small amount of capital to go out and find that company. The goal being once you find the company, you go back to that same investor group. That group then, if they agree with the valuation and the structure that you put together, which often involves, you know, obviously finding a bank who's willing to provide some capital for that deal, you purchase the organization, you and your business partner and their families would move to wherever that location is, wherever that operation is headquartered. 98% of the time, it's somewhere within the contiguous United States. And you run it. For usually a five to seven year period and there's a lot of great information on Stanford's website for those who are even more interested in in the deal uh, and how the search fund model works it was an amazing and roller coaster of an experience uh, to say the least so i was talking with Ryan uh, this was actually over a Reuben at Smallman Street Deli where I first heard about this I will not forget that day Uh, I almost choked on the Reuben which is how I remember that uh, because it doesn't really make sense when you first hear about it right so You telling me that some individual who's done very well for themselves is going to give me, you know, no name Scott from Pittsburgh, some capital that I can live on for two years while I work as hard as I possibly can and as smart as I possibly can to find a business. Then I can go back to that same individual and say, hey, I found this business, Aaron, would you like to help me purchase this business because I obviously am still a guy who just graduated from Tepper and have less than zero money. And you would say yes. And then you say, not only well, Scott, will I help you purchase this business? But I'm also going to put you into a leadership role inside of that organization and let you earn equity over a five to seven year period so that when you exit, everyone wins. Well, that sounds fantastic. And where do I sign? And so obviously, I'm a bit more cautious in those decisions. I had to do a lot of research on my own to learn about this. Ryan and I together probably talked to 35 to 40 different people who had already done this before who would be in our shoes. We uh, were actually in a business networks class at Tepper at the time and utilized our kind of end of class project to develop a social network of all of the investors that we could find who participated in search fund deals. We were able to, through that analysis, identify five core individuals who connected all the other investors together. And we called it the pentagram of death, because if you didn't get at least one of those five, the whole network just fell apart. And so in talking with others, some said, well, you should, you know, you guys don't know what you're doing, which is true. You should start on the outside, right? Fail early with some of the guys who may not be as seminal to the actual network itself, and then work your way in as you hone your pitch. And that normally took. Three to six months is kind of the average from the data that Stanford was able to provide. Well, Ryan had a family with young children. Uh, I, as previously said, married with a a child on the way. We did not have three to six months to figure this out. It was a, a fail fast mentality. And so we had this network in hand. We knew who these five guys were. It was November of 2012 at the time. We said, well, Thanksgiving's coming These guys don't know us at all. And they get probably hundreds of emails a day. Let's wait until the evening of Thanksgiving, the evening before Thanksgiving and send the emails out just to those five men, the core five guys. And if they get back to us, hopefully we can get them involved quickly. And if we get them involved quickly, we've just learned about all this tipping point theory, right? Maybe we can leverage that and roll this thing up quickly so that we can still eat come January, which would be ideal. It also required me to take a leap of faith and tell... Uh, the individual who owned the Hill Group that I was no longer to be with the company before we sent out this email because I wanted to be in good faith sending out this email. So I was done December 31st. You know, I notified probably in early November. December 31st was the cutoff time. It was a small firm, so I wanted to give as much time as possible and I really valued the time there. So now come January 1st, I had no employment and we needed to get this done. Uh, I also was actually still going to be at CMU until February. So there was a lot going on at this time period. We sent out the emails the end of November, heard back from all five on Thanksgiving, did a three-day trip in the Boston area in mid-November, did a week-long trip kind of west of the Rockies, so Salt Lake City, you know, Northern California, Southern California in early January. And we were able to close the fund in about a four week total period, but three weeks because between Thanksgiving and I mean, between Christmas and New Year's, there was nothing that anyone wanted to talk to you about absolutely anything, let alone random guys coming in asking me for money. So, able to close the fund, spent the next two years searching, um, had an office in the bank tower in downtown, which was fantastic. Uh, we were able to work with a lot of great people, looked at thousands upon thousands of organizations got close to a handful, you know, six or seven. Got very, very close within days away from closing within a couple. Um, we were and at the same time right telling our families like hey, we're ninety days away from moving to Puerto Rico. Whoop, well, never mind. Now we're ninety days away from moving to Sacramento, California, never mind. We're ninety days away now from moving to Eugene, Oregon, or Grand Rapids, Michigan, or somewhere outside of Chicago and burning a lot of chips in the family side at the time, I believe.
0: Can I ask a, a question real quick? Sure. Um, so this search process of finding these companies that are potential candidates for the secession plan that you're, right. you've, you've laid out, um, what was what did that search process look like? Yeah. And, and was there a team there helping you, or was it essentially um, just you and Ryan yeah. doing this research?
1: So the we both were very analytical. I probably more to a fault uh, than Ryan. And so we actually developed the process flow of how we were going to get this company found. And it started all the way from what's the idea of the industry that we want to look for. And some of those key characteristics were it needed to have a high margin potential, right? The EBITDA margins needed to be over 10%. They needed to have at least 50% of recurring revenue. There needed to be a three year history of growth there. And then obviously, and there's some other criteria, which mostly leads them to be a services style business, a recurring services business. But the bigger thing, right, is always who is sitting on the other side of the table, right? Is that seller really a seller? You know, are they interested in selling? And if so, can we get it for evaluation that we think is agreeable in order to get our investors the return that they need? And so you could walk through this process flow visually and see, okay, we create the idea. We then go and try to find as many companies as possible that fit within that industry. And a lot of that relied upon Carnegie Mellon resources that we had as I was still a student there um, and just doing Google searching, just really grinding through it. And that was our big mantra to our investors. And it's still one that I try to hold of, you know, just don't be afraid to just grind through something. Right? Don't try to find and spend eight days figuring out an easier way to accomplish a task that would take you seven days just to do, it. just do it. And that's what we did on the search fund side. You know, we find that list. 2000 companies, at least in most of those industries, we would go through those individually, go to the websites of that company, try to identify whether or not we thought that it would be fitting within the characteristics that we saw as attractive for us inside of that industry and kind of rate them one through five, each one of those businesses, the ones and twos, we would then have to try to figure out who was the person who could make that decision within that business. Do we know who the owner is, or at least do we know who the president might be of that company? Oftentimes, neither of those two individuals will freely provide you with their email address. So we had some tactics that we utilized to try to find what that email address was. Uh, Once we had the email address, we sent an email out. A week later, we sent another email out. We didn't hear back in two weeks, we called you. And then another week went by, we sent you another email. And we would do that cycle until you told us to leave you alone or had a conversation with us. Most of those conversations were exploratory in nature, so we were presenting ourselves as an entrepreneur-led private investment fund that was very interested in X, Y, and Z industry, and we recognized that they were a leader in that industry who had a very interesting philosophy and perspective to their business model. We just wanted 15 minutes of their time to learn more about the business, which was 100% true. If I talk to one person and learn a bit more about the industry, I've now been able to absorb some of the jargon, the way that they present themselves, how they talk about things, and maybe even a connection to somebody else. And that next person then, when I go and talk to them who are in the industry, now I can sound more like an industry insider because I also already spoke with Aaron. Oh, yeah, Aaron, I know him very well. Uh, We actually talked a little bit. We're going to go and see each other again uh, next week at the conference in Tallahassee or whatever it is. Are you heading to that conference as well? Now you're more likely to talk to me because I've said something that you already knew to be true and we're making a connection versus, hi, I'm Scott. How's the weather in Tallahassee? Right. And kind of starting from that point, we went through all of that process for, like I said, thousands of organizations. Once we had someone who was interested, it became more of the traditional private equity process, right? Of getting a letter of intent out from us saying we are interested in pursuing this further, getting some of the due diligence information initially, going back to our investors multiple times in a very iterative process and talking through concerns and trying to either credit or discredit some of those concerns by having conversations with the business owner. We would then move into that, you know, ability to get from the indication of a letter of intent to the, or indication of interest to a letter of intent that would actually outlay some of the terms and then move into some serious diligence process. Uh, And multiple times we got into that serious diligence process and the deal fell apart. Um, one fell apart that I think both Ryan and I, if Ryan's listening to this, he's actually cringing and possibly crying at the moment because he knows where this is going. Uh, fell apart four days before close, closed and it was out in Northern California and everything was done. This was December 20th, of 2013. I was getting my hair cut at the time downtown And we were ready to go to the point where before I left for that haircut, we had printed out all the purchase agreements that needed to be signed. They were still warm. We were going to fly out. I think it was the next day or the day after, get everything signed, fly back and spend the holidays with our families. And then instead of going back to our house, houses in Pittsburgh, we were flying to Northern California and being in the new houses that we already signed leases for to rent. Boxes were packed. Everything was done. Get a call like halfway through the haircut from Ryan saying, Hey, you need to get back here. Something's going on. Get back. We end up talking to the person who was the intermediary between us and the sellers. And he says, You know what? Uh, we really appreciate all the stuff that you guys have been doing. These last six months of working with you have been fantastic. Just spoke with some of the sellers, and uh, they would like 20% more in cash when you come out in the next you know, four days or more. And that was the reaction, just complete silence and no idea what to do from this point. And, you know, I think at the point, Ryan just shut down and I was right there. And then the only thing I just kind of reverted back to this consultant mentality and just was trying to ask questions, which is what you do. Right. So. What, where did this come from? What's the thought process there? Is there something that we can do to help understand why this is happening? Did you get a new contract? Is there something, some known cash that's coming in in future years that I could discount back and make some sort of semblance of logic as to why you're asking for this? No, we just think we're going to have a really good year next year and uh, we'd like to get paid for it. So everything blew up, obviously. There's no way that we could go straight face back to our investor group and ask for 20% more for a deal that was pretty much done that we just spent six months justifying that valuation. And now I have to try and with theoretically try in 12 hours or 24 hours to somehow convince everyone that, Oh no, we were wrong before. It's actually worth 20% more. It's just impossible. And we didn't believe it. And so it, everything fell apart. We had to kind of unwind the whole deal. Uh, Leases had to be canceled. My wife had to go ask for her job back. Luckily, they were comfortable with that. So that was very helpful. Boxes were unpacked. It was quite an experience. Uh, And then 2014, we had another close one in the first quarter for a different organization. Not as close, but still close and still frustrating. Uh, And then the rest of 2014, valuations were just insane for what we could do. And people were getting those numbers. So why would you change it? If you're the seller and somebody else is selling for that large amount of money, just because we say we can't do it and that you're crazy, if somebody else will pay it, you're probably not crazy. Maybe we're just in the long game. And that was kind of what we realized in the fourth quarter of last year, uh, early fourth quarter, late third quarter of last year, that we were at the end of our two years, pretty much. We didn't see a strong pipeline of really good deals that we thought we could close. There were a lot of great companies, but no deals we thought we could close and made that decision between the two of us to go back to the investor group and say, guys, this is what we're seeing outlaying the exact environment that we just talked about. We think it's best to close things correctly with you guys, you know, spend whatever funds are remaining with an attorney to close the entity to make sure there's no residual liabilities that are going to exist and move on with their lives. And hopefully we'll have the opportunity to connect again sometime because this investment group was fantastic. Best people that I've ever had the chance to meet in my life. So had that conversation. This was kind of August, September. Then I was left pretty much knowing that by, you know, a few months later, again, in the state where I don't know what I'm going to do come November. Holidays are coming, right? Had family still what do we do? What's the next opportunity there? So thank goodness we're in Pittsburgh uh, because there was a lot of great opportunity to network with individuals, have these conversations because I honestly did not know what that next step was going to be. I knew I preferred not to go back into the consulting world. I still wanted to get that dirt under my fingernail, still wanted to do something that would have a longer time period to it that I could look back on three years later and say, I was really excited to be part of the team that did X, Y, and Z, We together as a group went from low numbers to very high numbers and made a great impact on the people who we were able to interact with during that period of time. And consulting just didn't do that for me. Didn't want to do the corporate thing. So what does that leave you with, right? I didn't have any good ideas like what the next pen should look like. So that was probably out. And didn't have the, the cash to bootstrap something to try to figure out what the next best pen is going to look like. And so it was really very heavy networking and tried to meet with a lot of people and meet with as many people as possible. And luckily at that time, uh, the individual who founded this organization, uh, Community Elf, was more fully dedicating his time to the other company that he had created uh, that was recently acquired called Rent And... Obviously, his leadership has been fantastic. His name? John Pastor. John Pastor. Uh, He, again, he founded two organizations. Both have been successful. Rent Jungle, which was his first organization that was founded of the two, uh, was actually acquired in the summer of 2014 by a company in Atlanta called Rainmaker. Part of that agreement, as all agreements were, as our agreements always were, if there's a key person in that. Organization that you're acquiring, right? You want to keep that person and hopefully have them be dedicated to helping that organization continue to grow and improve. And that was the same thought process that Rainmaker had as a really directional. And so that left a potential opportunity at Community Health uh, because he was running both organizations. And so through uh, an individual named Eric Silver, who is another successful uh, entrepreneur and a thought leader, uh, who is an equity holder and a good friend of John, made the connection. Uh, And so John and I started talking. I'm sure he was talking to many individuals at the time, but stars ended up aligning, and I ended up joining the community health team in early November of last year. And so it's uh, exactly what I wanted to be doing.
0: Cool. Um, So we finally... (laughs) reached the point of getting to talk about community and what you're doing now Fantastic. 40, 40 minutes later. My goodness. Um Sorry So about. No 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 no. the story is truly captivating, you're a great storyteller and um one of the things I I constantly work on for myself and I give people the advice of doing is being able to paint uh, word pictures. Yep. So with just words, can you put a picture in someone's mind? And you've done an excellent job of that so far. I really appreciate that. Um, But Community Elf is a social media and digital marketing agency. Um, They help clients with content marketing, social engagement, SEO, search engine optimization, and digital advertising. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a new product coming out called Up Content. Which is in Hootsuite. I actually use Hootsuite for awesome. um, the Going Deep podcast. Just just downloaded up content. Yes, at, to check that out Fantastic. a little bit. Going to going to get a little deeper on that. Great. over the next couple of weeks. Um, but can you just help us understand what Community Elf does for its clients and um, how it goes about? Helping
1: yeah, them? yeah. I think Dale. I think you talked about it yeah. well, and we kind of think of ourselves either as a content marketing execution company or a content marketing managed services company, depending on what your familiarity is with some of those terms. So really to sum it up, the goal of ours is different than a lot of marketing agencies, uh, where a lot of those agencies have very, very deep competencies in the strategy development side, right? Helping you identify who you should be talking to, what kind of messaging is going to resonate with those individuals and helping you also understand the potential avenues or opportunities for you to be saying that. So you're going to likely walk away with a very strong strategy of knowing, you know, it's a 18 to 25 year old who is very passionate about vegan food and lives in Northern California. Right. That may be a persona for you. And I want to talk because of that demographic, the biggest things that resonate with them are some of the animal rights issues and uh, the desire for me to probably communicate with them more digitally than using traditional advertising because of where they spend their time. So you're left with that. A lot of customers then turn around and look at the same team that they had when that strategy started and say, this is a fantastic strategy. Who is going to do this? I don't have time to do this individually. And a lot of that requires storytelling, right? And that's what people are gravitating toward." How do you actually tell those stories in a way that is consistent, that is engaging, and that is relevant to that audience on the day-to-day basis that they require? To make sure that you're continuing to move individuals from being aware of your offerings or even aware that you exist and that you can help them solve a problem without selling them something, to engaging them in helping them solve that problem, to then converting them in some way, getting them to raise their hand and say, "This is an organization that I want to align myself to in some way," either I'm interested in you sending me information because I think what you have to say is very valuable to me as an individual or as an organization, or I'm actually interested in learning more about the products and services that you offer because through my research, I believe that you guys are the best ones to help me solve my problems. And then how do we retain that person and keep them engaged in our services or incite them to actually make a referral to someone else. So when you start looking at some of the recent statistics, right, an individual whether they're doing so for themselves personally or for their business, looks at about 11 different sources of information on average before they make a decision. When you pair that with the fact that the also the average individual has an attention span of about 6.8 seconds, which is 0.2 seconds less than a goldfish, it's a very difficult challenge for any organization or individual. How do I get you, Aaron, to come to my site, know that I can help you solve your problem, and maybe even know that tell you that you have a problem that you didn't think you had or that you didn't think a solution existed and do that on an ongoing day-to-day basis it's really a grind and in many cases the individual organization doesn't want to build a team to do that there's learning curves involved there's hr issues involved there's trying to find the right person and you're spending a lot of time just building that team up versus where that person really wants to spend their time is managing that strategy, ensuring that they're measuring it, and making those changes on the day-to-day basis. They want to own the playbook. They don't necessarily want to be the guys who own the playbook and then call the play and run out into the field, then execute the play and run back to the sidelines and figure out the next play and do it over and over and over again. They need somebody else to be on the field for them. That's who we are from the services business. We want to be those guys who are on the field executing on a day-to-day basis. So we have a team of about you know, near 25 people in total, I'd say the the vast majority of them, 15 or so are professional writers with the other remainder being kind of guys like myself who don't really add any value to the organization, but sit there and watch people do really good work. These guys create the content. They write really engaging, relevant posts for our 100 or so customers across 35 or so industries. And as you said, the common thread is telling a really good story, regardless of what that industry is. B2B, B2C, we're about a 50-50 split customer-wise, it doesn't matter. But the goal is to talk to that individual and become, for our customers, the leading resource for that customer they want to talk to in order to solve some problem. And if we can hear that from the customer, we can run with it. And that involves creating really great content, housing that content on that customer site, doing social media engagement activities, uh, which really involves, right, not just broadcasting that message and kind of throwing stuff at everyone's face as frequently as possible, but finding other pieces of really interesting content, adding that customer's perspective to that content to help engage their audience and then interacting, which is where a lot of people, I think, fall short. A lot of companies do a great job of sending information out into the social media ocean. And then when someone says, "Wow, thanks or favorite something, or becomes a new follower of yours, you act like you don't care. So why are you spending so much time doing it if you don't care? And maybe you do care, but you're just not spending the time showing people that you care. And so that's really the day-to-day grind that becomes this content marketing area. And having that that customer continue to keep the momentum and move through that journey. Because once you stop engaging them, 6.8 seconds happens and they are moved on to something else. So we do help customers from the engagement side and the awareness building side of digital advertising to helping them. Actually create really great content, managing the social engagement side of that content, helping with moving people then into email campaigns to get them even more engaged, addressing them after they convert. Now, what do you do with someone after they purchase your product? That's not shouldn't be the last time you talk to them because you think, well, check, I've, Aaron's bought my product. I don't need to worry about him anymore. Let's go focus on the next guy. He's going to be your great advocate if he has a good spe- experience with it but he's not gonna actually think to say something. He's got a lot of other priorities in his mind. So how do we get Aaron excited about telling somebody else about it? And if we move someone through that process, there's been some great studies that show the customer who moves through that process ends up after they make the purchase feeling like they're the ones who made this decision, right? I researched, how many times have you heard that conversation? Oh, this is the best notebook for me. I researched probably 15 different notebooks and read all about them and if you need a notebook, this is the one you should buy. Well, who better to say that? And so your ability to help someone move through that research process and keep them engaged, they're now 94% more likely to refer that product to someone else. And 97% more likely to be really satisfied with the product because there's no surprise you've told them everything there is to know about it. And you've educated them in a way to think about it. that's the same way you're thinking about it. And so that's what we do. And it does require this long day-to-day process. And it's with organizations as small as new and emerging startups who are doing some awesome things and don't have the desire to build out a team to do all that work for them to larger organizations, you know, GNC, uh, UPMC, organizations of that size who are doing some really great things in specific niches and also don't want to build out a team to address those niches. And then a lot of people right in the middle, right? The middle market area for us is a really core area because in most cases, that person who's leading the marketing strategy has a knowledge of those three questions. They know who they want to be talking to. They know what they want to be saying, and they have an idea of where they want to be saying it. But the question is, how do I get it done? And that's the one that we tend to focus on. Uh, and you mentioned a little bit about up content, which is helping for us to solve a problem that we're facing internally, of uh, finding really interesting stuff to talk about, uh, whether it's for a customer, right? Or maybe just for us individually to, as you're, you know, we talked about earlier, to be able to hunt for stuff. And it becomes very difficult to hunt for stuff because it takes a lot of time. And I, as much as I love the Google search result page, it's not somewhere I want to spend a lot of time. I want to find what I'm looking for, read it and spend time understanding and comprehending that article, then looking through the different results that I receive. And that's really what UpContent is being utilized for, is to address that desire And that cardinal rule that 80% of the content that you talk about via social or even in a personal interaction should not be about yourself. Like Think about the people who you get annoyed with. Oftentimes, now I say that although I spent 40 out of 60 minutes talking about myself, but 80% of it should be talking about a larger philosophy and your perspective on things that others are doing, with only 20% really talking about who you are and what you're all about and what you're trying to accomplish. It's no different When you represent yourself as an organization, 80% needs to be about your perspective, sharing information that you've seen from others, bringing that audience together and making them aware of who you are and what you're all about than it is telling them what your latest sale is. And so up content was created to scour news and blogs and videos and social media posts and help present those to you in a way that you can engage with them very quickly, add your perspective and move on to the next thing.
0: That's great. Um, I'm definitely going to include on my blog, here's, here's Aaron's self-promotion to follow that up perfectly, um, my, once I've used up content a little bit, um, learned about it, give some feedback, and write a post on my experience with some content for sure. Um, the one thing that was really interesting to me, so you talked about um, engaging a potential customer, um, you know helping them solve problems, and then getting to the point of, actually becoming a customer or client um, and how you help companies with that process. But I think what's also really interesting is taking it beyond that from the customer to the raving fan Mm -hmm. and how the strongest brands, the strongest companies out there, that's their really big goal and what kind of separates them from a lot of their competition. They're a raving fan because when they engage with their company X that company responds back to them, gives insightful, helpful information. And that is what um, encourages others to make connections. So if you take it back down to an individual social level, I want to connect the really interesting, valuable, insightful people in my life to the other people who share those same qualities because I know that they're going to exponentially increase the value that they provide to each other. Right. If you, if I were to introduce you to um, some doorknob who isn't really thinking about right. anything other than himself, not chasing or um, not trying to soak up as much information, right. hunting for that knowledge, that's not really going to do a yeah. lot
1: for And it reflects you. back on you.
0: Exactly. Right. Exactly. So getting to be a part of those really valuable networks and also almost outsourcing part of your PR and your advertising to these fans who are going to tell your story and speak highly of you without getting a paycheck. They're actually paying you for your services is really what I think every business and individual should be aspiring to. Having those advocates out in the world, putting your message out free of charge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people you talk to, especially in the organizational they're leading the charge to make the organizational message be known. Many of them will say, yeah, I tried the social media thing. It was a big waste of time. And a lot of it I think becomes if you reflect back to those times when you were participating on social and trying to be active and think about what you were sharing uh, and how you were getting it across. Think about what you were saying and think about if That was the same thing that you would be saying to a single person and just continuing to tell them those messages. Would they have been engaged and kind of continued to interact with you? Or would they also have turned around and walked the other direction? And so I think, you know, I came into this organization in November. I didn't have a Twitter account. I didn't do anything on Facebook. And I wasn't a very active social participant, right? But I think a lot of it was because I didn't really have anything to say or didn't think I had anything to say. I didn't want to spend the time trying to find something really interesting to say. And no, I'm not blogging and writing my own original content, although I could certainly see the value in doing that. At this point, but I do utilize tools to help me find interesting things that I can then spend 15 minutes putting my perspective on top of after I read the article and it hits two birds with one stone. I can learn something new and potentially share it with my Twitter, LinkedIn network and meet new people that way by finding common interests. And we've actually, you know, as as I said, I didn't have a Twitter account starting in November 3rd, created one in October to get ready to start this position because I figured. You're coming into an organization that does a lot of social media work. You should probably be active on Twitter or at least have an account for God's sakes. So I had that started utilizing up content when it came out in March, because again, from November till March, I was pretty much dormant. I had nothing to say. It's amazing what you can do when you find and really start hunting for stuff and sharing your perspective versus just reading those articles. We've met through this process of just sharing interesting information, three very strong strategic partners for us who are strategy developing agencies from across the country that I never would have known existed prior. And it was all just through sharing that information and sharing perspectives, not just retweeting if you're a Twitter user without putting anything on it. Hit the quote tweet button and talk about why you're sharing this. That's going to get people to be engaging, not just with the article and saying, thanks, Aaron, that's a really good article, but also that tells me a little bit more about who you are and if you and I could really resonate with one another and want to have a deeper conversation. Absolutely.
0: And we will link in the show notes um, to Scott's Twitter, other ways to connect with him and to learn more about Community Elf. We're um, wrapping up here. I got to let him get back to work. Yep. Um Before I let you go um, and before we get the challenge for the audience, do you have any uh, business idols or business books that have been particularly um, inspiring or helpful for you?
1: Yeah, and I think my, my favorite book that every time I read it, it becomes more and more valuable to me is called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Um, It's a fantastic book that kind of walks through all the struggles that he went through in leading an organization through the good times and the not so good times and gives you great talk about an amazing storyteller, great insight into his perspective as he was going through that, but also how now his perspective is as it relates to the major investments that he makes as a leading venture capitalist uh, and how he's really pulling from those past experiences to make those investments. And so not only does it give you really good insight, but I think it also gives you this pause to think about when you're talking with someone, you know, what really, where are those responses coming from, right? What are those past experiences that they might have gone through that's causing them to think in this way? And that's, those are fantastic things to explore and you can really get wrapped up in, in thinking about those things. And then any Malcolm Gladwell book is amazing, um, especially for those when you actually want to kind of just remove yourself from what's going on in reality. You know, tipping point is great blink is great you know, all of those are fantastic books that would just help you think in a different way
0: absolutely thank you for those um so we'll wrap things up hand the mic over to you one last time yeah. for a challenge for the audience
1: yeah so i think it kind of plays upon the theme that we've been talking about for the last hour um, the hunting piece and so i think the challenge for the group would be instead of I'm sure many of you say right now, Oh, I, I look at stuff all the time. You know, I have my phone out whenever I'm in between meetings or sitting on the bus, trying to go to work. And I'm looking at information and trying to stay abreast of what the goings on are. Stop being so passive in doing that. You have a lot to say, you have your own personal perspective. And start sharing that as it relates to those articles that you think are extremely valuable, things that you read that you say, wow, that was a really great piece or that was a piece that I don't totally disagree with or I don't totally agree with. You know, share that. Just share one a day. I think you'll be amazed at the value that can come from sharing your perspective on things with, and either do it socially uh, or kind of do it digitally via those social networks or just have conversations with people about things that you're thinking about or things that you've read. Uh, be a little bit more active in doing that. And I think that's where you're going to start to see the value not only of being active in kind of an online digital world, but it gives you a lot of great information to have deeper conversations with people than how about the pirates last night, which we don't want to talk about last night because this was that terrible royals loss, or what do we think about the weather this weekend or what are you doing this weekend? Like Those are all fine conversations, but it's very interesting when you start hearing about people's perspectives and why they're thinking about different ways. It allows the person who's talking to you to get a much deeper insight into how you tick than just a casual conversation. And it may allow for even greater connections. When I share how I think about things to you, Aaron, you may be thinking that, hey, this sounds very familiar to how Kenny may think about things. Maybe you actually connect the three of us together because we are doing something very interesting and we're all seem to be thinking the same way. If I had this weather conversation with you, you may be casual, you may say hey, it's that's, that's a good guy, but nothing else comes of it. So be active, either share online your perspective, add a comment, share it on Twitter, do something to be more active in how you're engaging with content, or make sure you at least have one conversation a day. If you have written off using Twitter or any social network that talks a little bit deeper about something and your perspective on something. And uh, I'd be very excited to hear what your results have been for doing that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, If you want to let Scott know how it goes. Well, once again, we'll connect to the show notes. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the episode. It's been an incredibly insightful uh, conversation. And just getting to hear your story has been uh, very eye-opening. For
1: me. Great. Well, thank you, Aaron. This has been fantastic. Absolutely.
0: And everyone, we just went deep with Scott Rogerson. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Scott Rogerson again uh, amazing story thank you so much to Scott for coming on the show Uh, before I let you go here I need to say a couple thank yous we got a massive influx of ratings and reviews in the past week so I want to thank everyone out there who uh, took a couple seconds to do that for me I want to thank specifically Josh Trent for leaving a five-star review Uh, said he really enjoyed the episode with Bobby Fry found to be honest and real uh, but love the material and love the quote. Don't be scared to make a change. You can always change it later, anyways. Uh, thank you so much for that review, Josh. We're also looking to thank um, Greeno JG, uh, who also gave another five-star review. Said he likes the tactical rapport, the long-form interviews. And it definitely goes deep. So thank you, everyone out there who left a rating and review. Uh, That is incredibly, incredibly helpful to me. I really, really appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, please take a couple – it's not even a couple minutes. It's a minute. Hop on the podcast app. Go to the show. Uh, There's a review section. Go in there. Write a review. Hopefully it's a five-star review. Um, And if you do leave a five star one, very good chance that you will get a thank you in a future episode. That helps me with the ranking algorithm that iTunes uses to determine which of its new podcasts uh, earn acceptance into the new and noteworthy section. So please do that for me. And until next time, thanks for listening. Have a great day.